What's going on, everybody? How we doing? I'm Pastor Skyler. Excited to be with you guys this morning. So that was a trailer for a religious documentary called Beyond Our Differences. And so the documentary pulls together key religious leaders, politicians, luminaries in their field to discuss religion, to look beyond the differences of the religions and see how they're similar, to enact positive change in our personal lives, but also positive change in the world. And at the end, the Dalai Lama says this, all the religions are different or ways to approach the same goal and the same message to create better human beings. Is that true? Are all religions the same, answering the same questions by way of the same message? Well, religious, excuse me, religions are systems of beliefs that have seemingly evolved over time to answer some of life's most profound questions and give meaning to our lives. Currently, there are over 4,000 religions in the world, and most religions have some things in common. They exist to meet a deeply felt need in our hearts to worship something and to experience something bigger than ourselves. Many have a similar code of ethics. It's generally believed that, you know, things like murder and stealing are wrong and loving your neighbors is right. Perhaps you've heard this saying, do not to others what ye do not wish to be done to yourself. Who said that? Here, a couple whispers saying Jesus. Well, actually, thousands of years before Jesus... There's an ancient Vedic religion dating back to the 13th century BC called Hinduism. And there's a book called the Mahabharata. And within the Mahabharata, it says, do not to others what ye do not want to be done to you. And then a few hundred years later, the Buddha says, do not do to others what, or excuse me, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. And then after him, there was a Chinese philosopher and teacher uh, named Confucius who said, do not do to others what you do not want done to you. Then 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then after Jesus, a man by the name of Muhammad said, desire for another that which you desire for yourself. It seems that there is some common ground between these faiths, right? And that leads some to say that all paths lead to the same destination. All streams lead to the same ocean. Is it possible that all the major religions in the world, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, are all saying the same thing? One goal, one message. If that's the case, what's the big deal about Christianity? If all religions are the same and they're ultimately teaching the same things, why do we worship Jesus and pray to him and not Allah or Krishna or Vishnu or follow the ways of Buddha? Wasn't Jesus just teaching the same things that the Mahabharata were teaching 13, or excuse me, yeah, 13 centuries before? And Confucius, they seem to all teach that God is love. Love your fellow man, care for others. If they're all the same, what makes Jesus so special? Why is Jesus worthy of our praise and our adoration if he's just teaching things that were taught thousands of years before him? With over 4,000 religions in the world, how can Christians claim that we have the one true religion? Why are you here this morning and not at a mosque or a synagogue or a Buddhist temple? Is Christianity just another world religion? This is an important question that we are going to talk about this morning, but an important question that you need to answer. 
and one we're going to discuss. But last week, Pastor Matt asked the question, did science kill God? And talked about how science and religion are not opposed to each other, but rather science is a gift from God so that we can better understand his world and worship him and his glory. And this morning, we're in week two of our sermon series called Six Reasons. Six reasons I might lose my faith and six reasons I won't. And so this series is part of our desire here at Rooftop to be a place where you can come safely with your doubts and with your concerns, as well as a place where the believers can be built up in their faith and be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So this morning, perhaps you're a skeptic. And I'm so glad that you're here, or I'm so glad that you're watching online. I'm sure you have good reasons as to why you're not a believer. I'm sure perhaps you have well-thought-out, rational objections to Christianity. And we hope to respectfully engage with those objections in this series. Perhaps you're a believer, and you've wrestled with doubt. And you've struggled with doubt. And perhaps maybe you're struggling with doubt right now and not sure how to answer some of life's difficult questions. Or perhaps you're a believer and you've never wrestled with doubt. And you've never really thoughtfully engaged with someone who believed differently than you. Well, First Peter tells us, 3.15 says, everyone should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. So my prayer for you is that you are sharpened in this series and that your faith is built up. This question, though, is Christianity just another world religion, has fascinated me for years. I became a Christian before my, right before my 19th birthday at a very dark time in my life. So naturally, I clung to the life jacket that was thrown to me, which was Christianity. But uh, not long after that, I wondered, had I been born in the Middle East... And had I walked into a mosque that September day in 2014, would my conversion have been to Islam? Would I now be an imam instead of a pastor? Would I cling to the words of Muhammad? Would my life be devoted to not teaching the Bible, but teaching the Quran and the Hadith? Or perhaps if I was born in India, I would be a pujari, a Hindu priest, studying and teaching the Upanishads. In college, I was really interested in in answering these questions, so I became a religious studies minor. I spent a year studying Islam. I spent another year studying the religions of the ancient Near East, the Babylonians, the Akkadians, the Canaanites, the Israelites, amongst others. Another year of studying Hinduism and Buddhism under Dr. Matthew Robertson, who was a former Methodist who became interested in world religions, who would then later leave Christianity behind and become an agnostic. So as a Christian, I wanted to know what was different about Christianity. What made Jesus so special? If I'm going to stake my eternity on this, I want to have some confidence. Anybody else? Paul said this, the Apostle Paul, if we're wrong about this, he says in 1 Corinthians, we are of all people most to be pitied. The claim I want to address today is that all the religions are the same. That Christianity is just another world religion. It is no different from the other religions of the world. And that belief in all that all religions are the same can then stem into two different trains of thought. The first one being universalism, right? Religions are all the same. All paths lead to the same uh, destination. Because it seems on the surface that religions are kind of similar. They have similar commonalities like the belief in a deity, a transcendent being. 
life, life after death, the afterlife, similar codes of ethics. They seem to be, there seem to be lots of common threads woven throughout all of these religions. Most have a flood story. Did you know that? Most have some sort of morality that can be summed up in, in serving others and caring for others above yourself. And they all have some sort of explanation of what happens after you die. You could go as far as to say that most religions contain some truth. On the surface, they do seem similar. And this leads some to uh, conclude that ultimately it doesn't matter which one you pick, as long as you follow it and you believe it with all of your heart, if you live a good moral life, no matter what religion, whether you're a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim, an atheist, if you live a good life on earth here, you will be fine in the next one to come. One Indian philosopher said this, We Hindus accept all religions to be true. The real sin is to call someone else a sinner. So to some, the real sin is exclusivity. So who is Jesus to say, I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. This statement has been called by some skeptics absurd religious chauvinism and spiritual dictatorship. Charles Templeton in his book, Farewell to God, writes this, The more than five billion people who live on earth revere and worship more than 300 gods. Are we to believe that only the Christians are right? The skeptics might ask, how dare Jesus of Nazareth claim to be the only way to eternal life? The exclusive claims of Christ... Being the only way to God is among the biggest obstacles to spiritual seekers today. The other option is none are true, right? Religion is just a culturally confined human development. They are all myths that no rational, logical person will believe. Religion is a crutch that people use to feel better about their life and death. All religion can be lumped together as fanciful bedtime stories that contain no real truth, no historical or scientific evidence, and therefore you can throw out the lot of them. A worldwide flood? Give me a break. A Jewish carpenter doing magic tricks in the desert rises from the dead? I don't think so. All religions are the same, and they are all equally false. Well, I want to level with you. This was the crossroads that I had hit in college. In the religious studies department, most of my professors were atheists and agnostics. Are all religions the same? Some would say yes. Are they all false? Some would say yes. Does it matter? I would say yes, absolutely. How we answer this question has eternal implications for our souls. So for the remaining time that we have, I would like to give a gracious and considerate rebuttal to the skeptical claims made against Christianity that we are no different from other religions and therefore Jesus is not worthy of our worship or belief. In my studying of other religions and in my pursuit of truth, here is why I am a Christian. Number one, all religions are not the same and they do not teach the same things. The claim that all religions are the same is fundamentally untrue. I believe someone who holds this belief has not studied in depth more than one religion in any serious capacity. Sure, on the surface they address common themes, but the deeper you go, the further away these theologies and philosophies drift apart. 
They are not the same. Not only are they not the same, but they actually contradict each other. The major religions of the world today, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Christianity, are not saying the same thing. It is not the same goal with the same message. It just is not. They are all distinct and mutually exclusive religious doctrines. They all make exclusive truth claims that refute other things. Jesus was not the only one to do this. Muslims claim exclusivity. Buddhists claim exclusivity. Buddhism was actually founded because Gautama Buddha rejected two fundamental assertions of the Hindu religion. Even Hinduism makes exclusive claims about what happens after you die, about karma and reincarnation. Even the skeptic makes exclusive claims rejecting the viewpoints of those who believe in God. So all religions and philosophies make exclusive statements about life, how to live, meaning, and what happens when we die. And almost all of these contradict each other, and therefore they can't all be true. For example, Islam teaches that to be a good Muslim and to to be a good person and to get to heaven, you must do what? You must follow the five pillars of Islam. There's a profession of faith, prayer, alms, fasting, charity... And a pilgrimage. So the very first thing, if you are a Muslim who wants to go to heaven and be a good moral person, the first thing you must believe and say is the profession of faith, which is, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. That is non-negotiable. Then you must pray five times a day towards Mecca in present-day Saudi Arabia. You've got to give to charity. You've got to help the poor. You must fast during Ramadan. And you must make at least one trip to Mecca, again in present-day Saudi Arabia, in your lifetime. These things are non-negotiable and obligatory for any sincere Muslim. And these are seen as the good actions one must do in this life to have a good one in the next. Now you may say, well, scholar, the Christian God says there's lots of things that we've got to do as well. Prayer, fasting, charity, right? Yes and no. The Bible is clear that we get to heaven based not on anything that we can do. It is not based on any work that we could accomplish in this life. It is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that we are saved. Then we are transformed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and do good works that reveal our faith and reveal God to others. But we do not work for salvation. That is a fundamental difference that differentiates the two. Buddhism is all about alleviating temporary physical circumstances, right? It is an atheistic philosophy dealing with suffering. So the four noble truths, suffering exists, it has a cause, it has an end, and it has a cause to bring it to an end. And the only way to end suffering is to detach from all worldly things and possessions to follow the noble eightfold path to reach nirvana, right? Hindus believe in many gods and they strive to achieve what is called dharma, which is a code of of ethical living. And the result of doing this perfectly right, so be perfect, is to end the cycle of reincarnation and to achieve moksha, which is essentially becoming one with the universe. Again, these are all very, very different. And yes, sure, they all teach morality that you must do these things to be considered good and to inherit eternal life, reach enlightenment or nirvana, 
But the means to get there and the beliefs that one must hold are very, very different. These religions try to teach you how to be a good person in order to receive a reward upon death. Contrary to what some people think, that is not what Christianity is about at all. Christianity teaches that there is nothing that you could possibly do to get to heaven, but it is Christ who makes us righteous. It has nothing to do with our works, but it is his work on the cross. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Some of you are wondering, is he ever going to read the Bible in this message or not? Is he still a Christian? Yes, I am. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I'm glad it doesn't stop there. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Look at your neighbor and say, it is not your own doing. Tell them, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There you go. For we as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hear me now. Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came into the world to make dead people alive. Paul tells us that we were dead in our sins, but we have been made alive in Christ. Jesus did not detach from suffering and pain in order to alleviate his own suffering and pain and reach nirvana, but in order to reconcile his lost and his broken creation to the holy and perfect creator, Jesus willingly submitted himself to suffering and pain for our sake so that we could be made the righteousness of God. Jesus and Buddha are not the same. Other religions teach you how to live a good life on earth, whereas Christianity reveals that none are good apart from God. In order to reach eternal life, we have to cling to the work of Jesus on the cross. Number two, why I am still a Christian. Christianity is true. Unlike the other religions in the world, there is actually overwhelming evidence that supports Christianity in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So hear this. Either the Gospels are true, or a group of people with no political or religious power in ancient Palestine masterminded the most intricate and well-thought-out lie in human history, and they pulled it off. They created a system of belief that changes people's lives, brings people together, makes people selfless, makes people love others more than themselves, integrates people from all walks of life, teaches moral principles, and answers the most fundamental questions of humanity. 
To propagate this lie, they then had to confirm hundreds of facts from ancient cultures, predict future events down to the smallest detail to make it reliable, and then get non-Christian historians to confirm their lies. Either it's true or that happened. If the resurrection is true, then all other faith systems cannot be true because they assert something contrary to Jesus' divinity. Christianity is based on a historic event that had eyewitnesses that you can study for yourself. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'll explain. How do we know anything? Right? Because we read what others recorded and wrote down for us. Who's this? Not a trick question. George Washington. What did he do? First president. Were you there? No. Were any of you there? How do you know? Because someone was there and they wrote it down for you. They recorded it and then we read it later and you learned, right? Let's look at another well-known figure. Who is this? Alexander the Great, yes. Way to go. Alexander the Great. What do you know about him? Was he a real person who really existed? He had great hair. He really did. Amazing hair. He conquered the known world by what? Age 30. You guys are close. 30. Died at 32. He was tutored by Aristotle. Do any of you ever question these things about him? Do you ever question that he was a real human being who really existed? Probably not, but everything we know about him comes from two sources, just two, a man named Plutarch and Arian. They wrote biographies. Everything we know about him comes from these two biographies that were written 400 years after he died. And we trust these as reliable sources. I'm not saying they're not either. I'm not like Alexander the Great didn't exist. No, I'm saying we trust these as reliable sources. We just have two of them, 400 years after the events took place. What if I told you that the entirety of the New Testament was written within 70 years of Jesus' life? That we have found over 5,000 5,000 New Testament manuscripts that are 99% identical, not diverging on one major theological doctrine, and they all attest to the resurrection of Jesus within 70 years. And scholars actually believe that within six months there was already a written and oral creed about Jesus' life, death, resurrection. Paul cites it in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This is a pre-existing creedal statement that was written within six months. Six months. Not 400 years. Within six months of the resurrection of Jesus. And some of you are thinking, well, that's from the Bible. And I don't believe the Bible. Very well. Jesus is mentioned in texts outside of Scripture from hostile sources. Or in other words, sources that are not Christian and actually, uh, in some cases, hostile to Christianity and that message spreading. Josephus is an ancient Jewish historian who talks about Jesus in his writings as a famous teacher, healer, and martyr. He also talks about how many people claimed, he's not saying it happened, but many people claimed to have seen and spoke to him following his public execution. Josephus also talks about a man named James who is killed because of his devotion to his brother, Jesus, the so-called Messiah. 
The Talmud, which is kind of like the Jewish New Testament, claims he practiced sorcery. It also calls his mother Mary an adulterer because she got pregnant by ambiguous means. In the Bible, we know that the sky went dark following Jesus' crucifixion. The Gospels tell us that. This is actually backed up by pagan historians. One of them is Thalos. And he writes of a darkness that covers the sky, and it coincides exactly with the moment that Jesus is said to have been killed. Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus talks about the crucifixion of a man under Pontius Pilate, who is described as preaching deadly superstition. He later goes on to name this man Jesus of Nazareth. Pliny the Younger, a Roman administrator, refers to Jesus and mentions that people in Rome began to worship Jesus as a god after he was crucified. The Greek satirist Lucian talks about Jesus as a crucified sage. Celsus is a Greek intellectual, talks about Jesus and his use of Egyptian magic to do miracles. Here are some of the accounts of Christ outside of Scripture. I'm going to read them for you guys. Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christ by the populace. Christ is from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, so he died during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of who? Pontius Pilate. This is a falsifiable statement. When was Pontius Pilate governor over Judea? AD 26 to AD 36. When was Jesus crucified? AD 30, within that time frame. Next one comes from the, the Talmud. On the eve of the Passover, when was Jesus crucified? Eve of Passover, Yeshua, which is Jesus' name in Hebrew, was hanged. He was killed. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald cried, he's going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery. So he's been doing some things that people can't explain. So they're chalking it up to sorcery. And what else? He's enticing Israel to apostasy, to turn away from their old way of life and enter into a new covenant. The Christians worship a man to this day The distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites was crucified on that account. It was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted. They deny the gods of Greece and they worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. Next one is from Josephus. Again, these are not Christians. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed we're not to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And on the third day, again, he's not saying this happened. He's saying this is what has been reported. On the third day, he appeared restored to life. And the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. So here are some things. I've made a list. Here are some things that we know about him from sources outside of Scripture that line up with Scripture. Number one, the name of Jesus, the place, time frame of his ministry, the name of his mother, the ambiguous nature of his birth. Again, these are facts. The name of his brother, his fame as a teacher, his fame as a miracle worker or sorcerer. The attribution of the title Messiah and Christ put on him, his kingly status in the eyes of some, the time and manner of his execution, when it happened, how it happened, the involvement of both Roman and Jewish leadership in his death, the correspondence of an eclipse at the exact time of his death, and the report of Jesus' appearance to his followers after his death, and lastly, the flourishing of a movement that worshipped Jesus after he died. 
We know from biblical evidence, as well as Greek, Roman, and Jewish texts, that Jesus was a real person who was really killed and that people really believed they saw him after he died. Sources hostile to the gospel attest to these things. There is an abundance of evidence for the resurrection that you should study for yourself. We're actually going to do a whole week just on the resurrection, and I can't wait. But the tomb was empty. Jews and Romans and, and Greeks and those skeptical of Christianity have tried to explain why the tomb was empty, but one thing that is a fact is that the tomb that Jesus was buried in was empty empty three days later. And the most plausible answer is that Jesus rose from the grave as he and the prophet Isaiah had predicted 700 years before his birth. There are 38 scholarly accounts of Jesus being reported doing miracles that include restoring a leper, healing a crippled man just by telling him to get up, a dead girl being raised and a hemorrhaging woman being healed by touching his robes. These skeptics do not deny these, these accounts, but rather they paint them in a negative light. Again, Jesus being accused of sorcery and Egyptian magic to do his miracles. Next to consider are the prophecies written hundreds of years before Jesus that his life would fulfill. Hundreds of prophecies, where he'd be born, the ambiguous nature of his birth, how he would live, how he would die, how he would be raised from the dead, at what point he would be raised from the dead. What is the probability that one man could fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies? There was a statistician who looked at eight. What are the odds that one man could fulfill just eight, just fulfill eight of these prophecies? So just for one person to fulfill eight of the prophecies, the probability of that happening is it would be one in ten to the 17th power. I've got the number up here. The probability that one person could fulfill that would be one in ten to the 17th power. So not very likely. So in other words, the probability that one person could fulfill even eight would be if you filled the state of Texas two feet deep in quarters, and then you marked one of the quarters, and then you mixed them all up, you blindfolded somebody, and sent them into the state to find that coin. The probability that they would find that coin is one in ten to the 17th power. Not very likely. Jesus didn't just fulfill eight. Jesus fulfilled 351. The odds of that happening are astronomical. The number couldn't even fit on the screen. And it can't, I don't believe that can, it can just be a coincidence. Lastly, number three, why I am still a Christian. Christianity is unique. Every religion teaches you how to earn your way to God. Christianity teaches that you can't. Other religions are works-based. Christianity is grace-based. Christianity is the only religion that teaches that God came to us. Romans 5.8 tells us God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still God's enemy, when we were still hostile to him in his ways, Christ died for us. Other religions make you reach up to God, but Christianity reveals the God who reached down to us. God didn't wait for us to get things right because he knew apart from his son that we could not. And so he sent his son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Every religion has rules and regulations to appease their God or gods. But Christianity is not about rules, but it is about a relationship with God. 
and being reconciled to God by way of Jesus Christ. Other religions give us a list of things to do. Some religions call them laws and pillars. And these are the things that we've got to do to be a good enough person to get to heaven. But Christianity teaches us that that's not the way that God operates. We don't have to appease God to receive his love and his favor. He showed those things to us in his son Jesus who died in our place when we were at our worst. And the separation between us and God is now gone because of the work of Jesus on the cross. So what do we do? So what? Why does this matter? Well, we have to take into consideration the evidence. This is evidence that demands a verdict, right? If this is true, it demands action. If Jesus is who he says he is and did what he says he, said he did, this means something for us. What do we do? We believe in faith and we repent. But our faith is not blind, as some people would say. It is rooted in history, it is rooted in prophecy, and it is rooted in eyewitness accounts. Not written 400 years after the fact, but within six months. We can examine the evidence and we can have confidence putting our faith in Jesus and his words. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Scripture tells us, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. He lived a sinless, perfect life, predicted his own death and resurrection, and he pulled it off. I'm going to believe anybody who can predict their own death and resurrection and then pull it off. In front of eyewitnesses, Jesus says this. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He's telling his disciples, this is what I'm going to do. Mark my words. This is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And history and evidence suggests that Jesus did exactly that. Well, come on, somebody. We believe not because of blind faith. We believe because of the empty tomb. That Jesus is the Messiah who came to dwell with us and to save us and to reconcile us to God and give us true life. This is our hope as Christians. That we can believe in Jesus alone, in Christ alone, and repent and be saved. We can be justified. We can be restored. We can be sanctified. We can be made new. It says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So after you believe and repent, what do we do? We, you got to go. Look at your neighbor and tell him, you got to go. Go with God. Go with confidence. I have talked to so many Christians, professing Christians, who are afraid to witness to other people. They're scared to evangelize. They're scared to talk to their friends. They're scared to talk to their coworkers. And I've found it's because they don't have a reason for the hope that they have. Perhaps they believe because their parents believe. And they believe because... Their parents believe. But did you know you can have more reason for the hope that you have? Hopefully now you see that this is not a myth. This is not a bedtime story. These are real events that happened. Jesus was a real person. And the evidence and eyewitness accounts indicate that he did 
What he and the prophets before him said he would do, that he would die, he would be crucified and rise from the dead three days later to give us life. Not just us, but everybody who would repent and believe. And our mission as Christians, if you really believe this, is to go and tell people, I'm so glad the disciples did not keep this to themselves. I'm so glad they told people and then refused to stop telling people, even to the point of death. They believed this so much that Jesus died and rose from the grave that they all died for it. Do you believe this enough that you would be willing to die for this? Will you even tell someone? Will you even tell someone what Jesus has done in your life? Jesus asks you to. He actually commands you to. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says this, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, and surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. Go and tell someone that Christ is alive, that the tomb is empty, that we can have hope because of the work of Jesus on the cross. It is in Christ alone that our hope is, in, is found. In Christ alone, not in Muhammad, not in Vishnu, not in Buddha. It is in Christ alone that our hope is found, that we are saved, that we are changed, that we are redeemed, that we are justified, sanctified, that we are made new, that we are brought from death into life. This is why I am a Christian. I am evidence that this is true, that John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Paul then later writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I am evidence that that is true. Before Jesus, I was lost, I was broken, I was angry, I was controlled by lust, I was controlled by insecurities. And one day at my lowest point, I put my faith and my hope and my trust in Jesus. And as his word says, he is faithful to redeem, he is faithful to forgive, he is faithful to make things new. And I have been made new. When I surrendered my life to Jesus, everything changed. I was changed and I had a new heart. It is in Christ alone that our hope is found. It is in Christ alone that we can have hope in this life and in the life to come. We're going to sing one more song and then I'll be back up.